Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin. This week, we are catching up. I had a missed week last week. I apologize. We'll try to uh, blast through some of the Olympic stuff that I missed, as well as Nielsen Palace's incredible win at the San Sebastian, Peter Sagan going to Total Direct Energy for 2022 and beyond, as well as um, Egan Bernal and Adam Yates crashing at the Volta Obergos Stage 1 today, and like what that means for the Volta Espana campaign for that Ineos team um, that is quickly going sideways for them, even before the race starts. We had our first ever sponsor for the Tour de France in Idaho and Foods. We want to thank them for coming on board. This week, if you want to support the podcast, you can just sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition that comes out once a week. If you're listening to this and enjoying it, you'll love the newsletter, so sign up for that now. And there's a paid edition that comes out daily during Grand Tours, and you get daily analysis for most races, as well as brand deals and discounts on products and a private chat. So Sign up for that at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. All right, we'll just start off with Nielsen Palace winning San Sebastian on Saturday. Um, it was kind of, it's kind of a goofy race in general. It's the week after, normally the week after the Tour de France. So um, you would think if you did, if we're not super familiar familiar with cycling that uh, it would not be for riders who just raced a three week race. That's super hard, but it is um, a lot. Of, it's kind of like the Tour revenge match usually, and almost always except for the last edition in 2019 it is won by a rider who has recently completed the tour um, just like the olympic road race which we saw this year where it's always won by a rider who just raced the tour de france this year san sebastian was a little bit different because it was the week after the olympics so a week later than its usual slot um, really hurt the start list normally you get pretty it's a pretty star-studded field it's kind of the sixth monument if you will it's not a monument but it's the step it's like probably the highest prestige a one-day race could be without being a monument perhaps people would argue strata bianchi should be in there but that race is a lot shorter san sebastian's like 223 kilometers i believe which in my opinion puts it in a class that you know really only the monuments are in as far as challenging terrain so there, there was a little bit of a, of a diluted start list, I think to say politely, um, as well as some, I found it a little exhausting where we had the tour, we had the tour to finish Olympic road race. And then next weekend, it's like, there's another race. Like what is happening here? And then soon we'll be into the Vuelta. So it's, it's kind of, I, I think the race kind of struggled, particularly this year from just being kind of packed into this really busy schedule. Um, you're kind of like, what is this? Is this for riders at the tour that are doing the Volta? Um, but that was also kind of what its biggest strength because Nielsen Palace did the tour, um, didn't do particularly well. He kind of struggled. I actually didn't think he was nearly as good as he was in 2020. Um, but then he wins this race um, against riders like you know, Egan Bernal, who's doing the Volta. So it was kind of this fun thing where you get to see this mishmash of riders um, racing against each other. He, uh, he won in a three-up sprint against Matej Motoric and Mikhail Honore on Dukona Quickstep. Um, Motoric, if you'll remember, won two stages at the recent Tour de France, so he's got to be disappointed to win out on the, miss out on the win here. Um, probably also disappointed not to be at the Olympic road race. He didn't do the race. I think he just thought it would be too hard right after the, the Tour and the, that the course wouldn't suit him. But after seeing that that course i i don't know i think he might have wished that he was there you you could have seen him competing for the win and maybe even being in that move with uh, brandon mcnulty and uh richard carapaz that went on to win the race but he gets beat uh by palace in the sprint here Pr- pretty powerful sprint you know palace has never won a professional race before so this you know any race is big when you've never won a race before 
But this is a big race. And as far as one day classics, I went back, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, email me at beyondthepelotonpod at gmail.com or just tweet at me at, at Spencer Sword on Twitter. But I think this is the first US one day win since, at least, like, even slightly major one day win since Tyler Farrar won Skeletal Price in 2012. And if we pull back to World Tour wins, I think this is the first you know, major one day win for America since. 2003 when Tyler Hamilton won Liege best on Liege so massive win like absolutely massive and the fact that we're so bad as a country in one day races doesn't shock me because they take you know you can kind of create a grand tour rider in a lab like TJ Van Garderen or you know Andrew Talansky these are kind of guys who just like learned really specific skills and they could time trial so they're they're gonna finish decent in a one day race or one week race but one day races take a lot of nuance, take a lot of, you know, tactical know-how and, and particularly bike handling and, and just skills in the bike, you know, which has not been the US men's strong suit for a very, very long time. But I think, you know, you can kind of start to see a slightly less crappy future when you have like Brandon McNulty getting sixth place at the Olympic road race, Nielsen Palace winning this. You know, it's like are, these guys are kind of they look like a part of a generation they're both around the same age like early 20s you know maybe a generation that is not as inept at bike handling or you know kind of struggling on the smaller european roads with just more riders you know it's just it's so different racing in europe it's much more competitive where you know if palace and mcnulty had just grown up racing in the u.s and hadn't gone over to europe you know, they would have been the strongest riders on the road, on a big road. You get to Europe and there's 200 riders almost as strong as you, if not stronger than you, um, on smaller roads, which is just really hard to navigate. A lot of, you know, riders never even learn how to do this. You know, and what makes it even more impressive is that the Basque country is, the, the weather's always bad there. Uh, and, and it was just like up and down. So a lot of sketchy descents. It took a, a lot of bike handling to win this race. And so that, that's a huge, huge positive for Nielsen Palace. I mean, I, I'm so impressed that he could win this. This is like the most Euro a race gets, and he wins it. Um, it it's kind of shows you the anything's possible with this guy. If you remember, he had two pretty much lost years. He was like a highly touted Neo Pro. He went pro with Yumbo Visma, didn't do anything, you know, just two lost years there. Was, was pretty good, showed flashes in his first year at EF last year. And then this year, it's like, you're starting to wonder, is this, is this guy the best U.S. rider currently? Um, McNulty obviously had a great showing at the Olympics. So, you know, you can't just gloss over him. But I'd say him and McNulty are 1A, 1B as far as the top U.S. riders currently. At least in the one days, you know, Sepp Kuss won a Tour de France stage. So you also have to respect that. But Sepp is a little bit older. You know, he's in his mid to late 20s. You know, he's probably never going to develop as a, one day racer. He's just a, he's a really good stage hunter and a grand tour, which is, which is super impressive. But as far as like real stars going forward, and we're finally starting to see like a hint, at, you know, things could be changing for us cycling. Um, one thing I want to push back on is this win looks good for EF. They had Simon Carr up the road. It, they caught him with 20 K to go when uh, McNulty, not McNulty, when Palace's you know, breakaway front group. I, I wouldn't, people referring to it as a breakaway win. I, I just kind of thought it was like a front group, so, like getting super selective. You know, it was like four of the strongest riders in the race, strongest and best descenders just kind of peeling off from the peloton. I think that's just a front group. They caught Simon Carr. So it meant the Palace was the only rider in this super elite group to have a teammate. 
you know, that was really helpful. And the thing about Carr is um, he's not some, this is not some like, oh, they, they found this obscure British French, he's like a British French dual national. And now they're grooming him. They just ended up with him because he was on Nipo Delco last year and Nipo switched over to EF and said, hey, we want to bring these three riders from our other team. And he was just one of the, he was like part of the deal for Nippo to come over and sponsor the team. So they just like, he just landed in their lap. And now he's emerging as like one of the best riders on the team. So just like dumb luck, they ended up with him. Um, and, that, and that's a lot of the team's success. I mean, Palace is just a really good rider. I don't think there's anything going on at EF that is making him particularly good. They do have really smart people in the car. Um, their directors on the ground are really good. Uh, but as far as like, some type of, I heard like Vader's talking about like his R&D and, and their rider selection is just like world-class. And that's why they can compete with, with such fewer funds than everyone else. If anything, they waste a lot of money. They, they sign a lot of riders to, you know, on contracts that are frankly probably much too large for their talents. And then they underperform. Um, that's the opposite of like doing a lot with a little. And, you know, just the facts, they're, they're currently 13th out of 19th on, of all world tour teams in pro cycling stats, you know, um, season long points. They're always towards the bottom of the points. So I would push back on the thought that like this is some super successful team. They're just a team who happens to, you know, sometimes sign incredibly talented riders like Alberto Bediol, Nielsen Palace, Simon Carr. I mean, I guess Rigoberto Uran, but Uran also, you, know, you wonder, could he be could he be accomplishing more on a different team? Um, we saw the first, you know, first half of the tour, at least he was incredible. And then you wonder if he was on a team that really pushed him, that really knew how to manage him, would, would he be, you know, podium in on the regular at Grand Tours, you know, possibly. So um, yeah, just, just pump the brakes on the, on the EF love there. Uh, another note, Remco Evenepoel was the defending champion. You might not remember that because the race was in 2019. It didn't happen in 2020. You know, one thing that's interesting about Remco is he was, when he won that race, it was really, really, you know, celebrated as like, oh, he's the star of the future. Um, it's been two years, you know, really that's the high watermark of his career so far. You know, he's 21, but that's the last race of, of really any note that he's, that he's won. Um, he had that bad crash in 2020. He's not looked as good as he did when he won that race. So in that pertains to the Olympics as well. I mean, he was really highly, highly rated in that road race. You know, didn't do well at all. Same with the time trial. If you remember, he was second in the 2019 World Time Trial Championships. He was really outclassed in that time trial. A time trial, which, which really should have, should have suited him. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But yeah, something to keep an eye on with, with Remco there. Not a good showing at all. And as far as his Dakonic Quickstep team, kind of a bad day. They get a rider on the podium with Mika Onre. You know, it's super impressive Danish rider. A lot of great riders coming out of Denmark recently. It's it's kind of ridiculous. But the team was heavily favored in the race with Julian Alaphilippe. I mean, with this diluted field, Alaphilippe should have cleaned up. You know, but he just doesn't even make the front group. They don't really try to peg it back because they have a rider up there. But then you're asking Onre, Onre, Onre to sprint against Palace, who's you know, not a star but pretty good, and then Matej Modric, who's who is a star. He just won two. Uh, two stages of the tour. So kind of a weird decision there. You know, you'd think you'd just back the world champion, the current world champion to win the race. Um, you know, also it's going to sound ridiculous. People might not believe me, but he's actually, Alaphilippe is, is kind of trending down. You know, he's he had three wins in all of 2020. One of them was a world championship. So 
Um, if you win the world championships, you had a good year. You know, you can't say someone had a bad year, but that was a big step down from 2019. I think he won uh, 12 races in 2019, held the jersey, yellow jersey at the tour for 11 stages, got fifth overall. You know, was threatening to win the tour at, at certain points in that race. You know, and then he only has three wins this year. It's not these are not um, trends that you want to see. And I think a lot of it he he did pop off a pretty impressive victory stage one of the tour. So he gets these big wins that kind of mask what's really going on. And if you just look at the data, he is trending down as a rider. Um, and, and I thought it really showed on Saturday. That should have been a race that he just just crushed everybody at. And he looked, you know, not that, not that good. And, and that kind of is a continuation of the tour after that stage one victory, where stage two, he loses the jersey because he's not either paying attention or strong enough to defend his lead in the time bonuses. Um, and then just really struggled. I felt like the rest of the race, I mean, there was the Mon two stage where he was just kind of needlessly attacking at the beginning and then obviously got dropped because he spent way too much energy attacking. Um, and he did that multiple days. So, you know, something to keep an eye on as we close out the season here and start next season. Um, <laughs> biggest news, Peter Sagan going to total direct energy. I think I had this in a newsletter like two, three months ago. I'm not shocked about it at all. Um, it makes a lot of sense. People might be like, wait, what? Why is Peter Sagan going to a small second division French team? What's going on? Um, Sagan is actually, this is what happened when he went to Bora. Bora was a small second division German team when he left his um, Saxo. What was that? Tinkoff Saxo? Saxo. They were like Tinkoff Saxo, then Saxo left and they just were the Tinkoff team. But Sagan is this interesting character where he's such a big personality and such a big star and commands so much money that he doesn't fit into an established team. You know, someone like the Kona Quickstep can't accommodate Peter Sagan, you know, for the four or five riders he'll bring with him, his brother, four or five support staff, um, probably like his own physio, his own masseuse, his own mechanic. Um, shout out Jan. I hope you made it over to Total Direct Energy. But um, so it means he can't go to a big team because a big team's going to be like, hey, no, we can't, we can't accommodate this. We got our own thing going on. And also we don't want to pay you, you know, 4 million euros a year to you know, win a few races and just be a goofy guy. So he goes to these smaller teams, um, but he brings a bunch of money with him. It's, it's kind of like an F1 situation where he brings his own sponsor. So Specialized is leaving Bora. They're going to be sponsoring Total Direct Energy next year. You know, it's a big, you know, I think it's like the third biggest bike company in the world, but it gets complicated because they're owned by Merida, which is the biggest bike company in the world. So Specialized is a big, big brand. Um, and they're probably bringing, you know, 10 million, if not more euros to that team. They're essentially going to be partners in the team. So it, it like Sagan pays for himself. Um, and the only teams that have like room to accommodate that much muscle and like that much, you know, to see that much control are, are these small second division teams. It's a pretty good deal for Total Direct Energy, who has some good riders right now. Like Anthony Torgis is very good. Uh, Pierre Latour is pretty good. Uh, Nikki Terpstra was supposed to be good, but riders who leave to kind of quick step are never very good. Um, think of like Philippe Gilbert, who has left to go to Lotto and hasn't done anything since he left. So um, not, not a total surprise. Terpstra struggling. He has, has just had some bad luck too. But also as you get older, you just tend to have bad luck because you're slightly less fit. You make mistakes in the peloton. Um, it, it's definitely a thing. It, this this is like I get, this is a great deal for Total Direct Energy. They don't have a ton to lose. It's like 
maybe they'll bloat the team a little bit. Maybe they'll alienate some of the French riders who have come up within the program, but they don't have a ton to lose here. Um, the team is really struggling for success. You know, maybe what if Sagan wins a green jersey next year at the Tour? Like, that's a huge, huge win for the team. If he wins one stage, wins a green jersey, that's a success. Like, that's their year mead right there. So they're totally willing to take this risk. Um, I'm a little less, less bullish about Sagan. There's not a great track record for riders that go from the World Tour down to the second division. But at the same time, this is a fake second division team. You know, they have a big budget. They have a lot of money. They just think it's not worth their time to be in the world tour because they know being a French team, especially with the big star like Peter Sagan, that they will get invited to the tour. They'll also get invited to the spring classic. So what do they care? They don't really need to go to the Vuelta or the Giro. So they can spend a lot less money on overhead. They don't have to deal with the administrative costs of being a world tour team. And they don't have to go to all the races that they don't, that they don't want to go to. So um, this is actually perfect, perfect situation from, you know, just a simple logic standpoint, but I, I'm curious to see how it goes. It could, it could go sideways. It could actually, you know, it, it, people aren't really predicting this, but it could revitalize Sagan a little bit. I wonder if he was a little bit, you know, feeling bogged down at Bora. When he went to Bora, it was, if you remember, it was Bora Ar- Argon 18 and the team was, was just him. Like he, he was the, sh- he was the show. But since then, they've, they've gotten pretty good, and they have a good diversity of riders. They have Sam Bennett. They had Sam Bennett. Um, that, they, there was some headbutting there with Peter Sagan. There was some headbutting there with Peter Sagan. Um, but then they have, you know, even think like, uh, you know, they have Niels Pollitt now, super strong rider. They have Max Shackman, Emmanuel Bookman. I mean, they're, they're going for GC in some races, as well as, you know, having success in Hilly Classics. They want to stage the tour the day that Sagan left. So, you know, it might just be time for that situation to dissolve and Peter to go do his own thing. So curious to see how this goes. I, I know it looks shocking, but when you just think about, well, what team could accommodate, you know, that much, you know, Sagan, <laughs> that much, you know, it's like Sagan and six brothers and like four masseuses and five mechanics and a bike sponsor and Sagan having a lot of say in the team because he's bringing a ton of sponsor cash. There's not, there's not many options. So um, this is a kind of exactly what I thought would happen. Uh, next bit of news, Volta Abrogos, stage one was today. This is notable because Egan Bernal and Adam Yates are the two Ineos leaders at the Volta Espana, which starts way too soon while I'm on vacation. Uh, might not be podcasting for that one, but I will be sending out a newsletter. This is, this is kind of not great for them. I, I don't really know the extent, the extent of their injuries, but it's, it's really not good to be crashing before a Grand Tour that you want to win. We saw that with Primus Roglic last year when he crashed at the Curtium du Dauphiné. He probably didn't quite recover fully, which is why he kind of fell apart at the end of that race. This also you know, just reminded me of like the weird, you know, the weird dynamics of that team currently. So Adam Yates comes over has a great spring, probably the best rider on the team all spring before the Giro. Um, Engel Bernal wins the Giro and then says, you know, I feel pretty good. I'm going to try to win the Volta. Well, that's the, <laughs> Adam Yates doesn't get selected for the Giro or the Tour. He gets sent to the Volta. That's like his consolation prize. And then now the leadership is like being shared with Egan Bernal. He can't be too excited about that. I mean, especially after just looking so good all spring, you know, really the only rider to really challenge Tade Pogacar when he, he finished, he lost to him, but he finished with him on a mountaintop finish at the UAE Tour. Um, I have to imagine he's pretty upset about this situation. I, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, let's just see how he does the Vuelta. But if he wins the Vuelta, 
you know, I, I think it's going to be like a, a make or break situation where then either he is now like the second leader on the team behind Bernal, possibly even above Carapaz, or just leaves. You know, that's not a good situation to be in. He can't even make race, like he can't even make race squads. So um, really, really a bizarre situation there with that shared leadership. But who knows, you know, how healthy either of them will be before the Vuelta. This kind of continues Ineos' disaster of a season. They won this Giro, but they, you know, they kind of lose the tour in, I wouldn't say fantastic fashion, but slightly embarrassing because they, they rode on the front all race and then Tadej Pogacar won. So that doesn't look good. And then kind of to make matters worse, they, Carapaz wins the Olympics, which I guess is good, but he doesn't win it for them. He's, he's racing for his national team at the time. Um, and Teo Gegenhart and Garrett Thomas were really bad at the Olympics. You know, they, they were bad at the tour. Um, they both had issues with crashes. And then the same thing continued at the Olympics where it's like, what is going on with all these crashes? You know, at some point it stops being bad luck and it's, you know, you've got to look around. Is it like management? Are they not being coached on the right place to ride on the road? Like what is going on here? Are they just out of shape? You know, that's, now, that can often be the culprit for crashing, where you're just slightly unfit. As I said earlier, older riders crash more because you're just working harder to stay in the group and you make bad decisions. Um, but let's just, if we assume Yates and Bernal are healthy, you know, I don't, I don't know if I've heard a definitive no on Pogacar racing the Volta. I'm pretty sure Prim, Primos Roglic is. So we could potentially have Bernal, Adam Yates, Pogacar, Roglic facing off at the Volta, which would make it by far the best Grand Tour of the year, uh, which would be, that would be amazing and hilarious that the Volta would like consistently every year be serving up the best head-to-head battle. I guess last year the Tour was, was the best, but in the past few years, you kind of get the, it's like a decanting effect where everyone misses each other at the first two Grand Tours, and then people just kind of end up like it's like a pool filter that catches everyone. The Volta, you just kind of end up there. And then the la- the last thing we'll talk about really quick is um, Primoz Roglic winning the Olympic TT gold. Uh, this is in this is, I guess, was surprising, but also not surprising. Roglic is it, it's a super impressive win. Um, it's like redemption for the tour where he looked fantastic physically and then crashes out stage three. I'm sure it's a big deal for his home country of Slovenia. They aren't winning a ton of summer Olympic gold medals, although they had won more than I, than I thought they would have. But it also it's, it's continues this trend, him just bouncing back from, from like devastating losses. If you remember last year at the Tour, he, he loses stage 20 in like the most devastating fashion you can think of to his own countrymen, and then comes back and wins Liege, best on Liege, and the Volta later in the year. This year, he goes to the Tour to get you know, revenge for the loss. Last year, crashes out. And then comes back and wins an Olympic gold medal in the time trial. Um, super impressive against some really good, really good time trials. That's kind of what has been a bit shocking to me to watch. I feel like the time trial has gotten so much more competitive, even since the last Olympics when Fabian Cancellara won, where you know Tom Dumoulin gets second after preparing all summer just for this time trial. Rowan Dennis gets third, same thing, just preparing all summer for this time trial. Um, I think Wout Van Aert was sixth, and he won the last time trial of the tour. Um, you think of like Stefan Kuhn was fourth. He's he's like his whole career is time trialing. I'm um, I believe Philippe Pagano was fifth, who is also just that's just what he does is he's a time trial specialist. And those Ghana and Kuhn are very good. 
Um, so the fact that they're not even finishing on the podium is really, really shows just how high this level is. Um, the course was a little bit harder, I think, than advertised. And this is kind of a common thing at Olympic and World Championship races when you have one-off courses. Everyone can kind of guess what the course is going to be like, but it's, it's actually much harder to predict than you think. Um, a lot of times the road race courses end up being people overestimate how hard they are. Um, if you remember, Rio was, I actually, we just got an email at my other publication, The Outer Line, about um, saying that Rio, the course was perfect for Peter Sagan and he didn't win the race. Um, yeah, I guess technically there were, it was maybe a climber's course, but the point I was trying to make with that is that, you know, the, there's always bigger groups at the end. It's, it's rarely just a climber winning solo. And a lot of times it is a classics specialist winning or at least a rider with a lot of classic success. Richard Carapaz would, would, would probably, you know, maybe, I think you would, you know, qualify him as a climber, but I don't think, you know, he's not nearly as good at climbing as Tadej Pogacar. He didn't win the Olympics this year because he's a better climber. He won the Olympics because he's a better racer. Um, and if you think of Wout Van Aert, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, don't, I guess we don't really know what Wout Van Aert is, but he won the final sprint of the tour. So pretty good sprinter. Um, you know, he got dropped in the mountains of the tour. So you'd probably say he's not the best climber in the world. And he gets second at that race, you know, and Alberto Bediol's in that final group, who's definitely a classics rider, not a climber. So a lot of times the road race ends up being a bigger group than people think less, slightly less selective. Let's just settle on that. Um, and the time trials, a lot of times end up being harder. Um, probably just because people look at our profile and say, wow, that's a lot of climbing. But then you know, people are, these guys are so fit that when they're racing in a group, they can kind of just, you know, the group can kind of pull you up a lot of these climbs. And people, I think, underestimate what it takes to break up a group of really strong riders. You know, but in a time trial, you're, you're by yourself. So even slightly small climbs, like two, three long climbs, can really make a difference, especially when you have much bigger riders like Ghana and Stefan Kung against really, really slight guys like Roglic you know, tall, skinny guys like Dumoulin. And even Dennis is pretty skinny. People think of him as like a big powerhouse, but he's not a huge, huge time trial specialist. This win kind of confuses the story around Rocklitch even more, the narrative, if you will. Um, I guess people, it feels like people want to cast him as like a Cadell Evans type, you know, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. But the guy wins a lot. You know, he, he lost the tour in 2020. He lost the Giro in 2019, but other than that, he wins a lot. Like uh, you know, he's won the Vuelta two times. The last two Vueltas, he's won. He's won Liège, Bastogne, Liège. He's won an Olympic gold medal. Actually, the only rider to ever win a monument, a Grand Tour, and Olympic gold is Alexander Vinokurov, who won gold in 2012. But no, no other rider has done that. Um, at least since they started letting starting professionals racing in 1996. Um, so that's really, and if you think of just you know, grand tour winners who have won a one day monument, you know, that's not very many riders. Um, I guess you have Andy Schleck, you know, once you start getting into the Andy Schleck territory, you're like, is this really elite territory? But Schleck was good, at least for a few years there. Um, but it's very rare. You know, I think Lance Armstrong never won a monument. You know, Chris Froome, Bradley Wiggins, Cadell Evans, he did win the world championships, but he never won a monument. So it's an extremely elite company that he's in. You know, and if you, you know, if you just did like a blind test and you put out Garrett Thomas's Palmares with Primus Roglic, 
you know, Primoz Roglic is a more impressive rider. He's done it in a lot less time. It's actually huge. It's actually kind of an interesting thing. If you put down Tade Pogacar's career palmares and he's 20, remember he's 22 years old and you combined Bradley Wiggins and Garrett Thomas, um, you could argue Pogacar has the more impressive palmares, which is super, super absurd. Another note for the time trial is, so Roglic and Tom Dumoulin are teammates on Yumbo Visma. They get one and two. Rowan Dennis is on Ineos currently, but he's going to Yumbo in 2020 next year. So Yumbo essentially for their squad next year gets first, second, and third. Wout Van Aert gets sixth, and Jonas Vindegaard doesn't race. But we now know from the tour that that he's one of the best time trialists in the world. So that means they could go to next year's tour with five of the best time trialists in the world on their team. Um, pretty pretty tantalizing to think about. I guess one question would be: Okay, they can control the race, start to finish, because they have so many strong time trialists. But to what end? You know, who on that team is beating Tade Pogacar? You know, can anyone on that team even beat Tade Pogacar in a time trial? And you know, perhaps Wout Van Aert, but can he climb with him? Um, so you start to wonder, like, well, what would be the con- point of controlling the race if Tade is just taking time on Jonas Vingegaard and Roglic in time trials? Um, it's a, it's a valid question, I guess. You know, in theory, they could race aggressively if they have that many strong riders, but then then you're left with the question of, well, is aggressive racing good if you don't have the strongest rider on the road stages? You know, that's what Ineos learned this year. Yeah, you can race on the front as much as you want, but you're only hurting your own leader, you know, more than you are the other leader, and then they're going to take advantage of that. You know, but you know, one thing that you know, before we kind of throw our hands up and be like, well, Tadej Pogacar is going to win the next tour. You know, Jonas Vingegaard beat him in that final time trial. Jonas Vingegaard's a very good time trialist. Primoz Roglic, literally the world's best time trialist when, you know, when he's not crashing. He is the Olympic champion. So, I mean, think about this. Jumbo Visma, in theory, this isn't going to happen, but they could have five riders beat Tadej Pogacar in a time trial next year. You know, even if one of those, even if Roglic or Vingegaard beats him, it does put a lot of pressure on him. If Roglic beats him in a time trial, which... You know, after seeing this performance, he beats Dumoulin by over a minute. You know, I'm not convinced if he doesn't crash on stage three of the tour that he doesn't win that stage five time trial at the tour, which then completely reshapes that Tour de France. Um, it puts all the pressure on Pogacar, and we've never really seen him in road stages where he has to take time back on people. And also with Vindegaard just kind of seeming to improve at like warp speed in the time trials, that's also not a given that Pogacar is going to be better than him in time trials next year. So, and then it's always the Wout card to play. And I think, you know, this, the opinion split on this is Wout really a GC rider or not? Um, I think he could be, you know, we'll see what happens, but you know, if he can keep time trialing as well as, as he is and can climb a little bit better, that's also not, you know, just like a, a give me win against Pogacar. So, um, I know UAE is is improving the squad, but but they still won't be nearly. I mean, they'll actually be significantly weaker in respect to Yumbo next year than they are this year, um, which will make things really interesting at the tour. And then one last note on the on the time trial. It, it's crazy to think about, but Tom Dumoulin retired in January. Um, I don't know if this was always the plan, just to take a break and then come back and get silver at the Olympics or try to win the Olympics, but. You know, he did a retirement. He went to team camp and then did a retirement announcement. Um, flash forward to July, and he's getting second in the Olympic time trial, which is pretty impressive. Um, he did lose a lot of time on the second half of the course, which tells me some of the fitness isn't quite there. It totally makes sense. If you 
step away from racing, even if you're training a lot. I think he probably was just, he's not getting the same intensity that Primus Roglic is. I'm sure Primus Roglic's tour prep was absolutely brutal. And he was able to train at a higher, you know, higher level than Dumoulin because he had the spring in his legs where Dumoulin didn't. Um, so that, that's, that is like, if you look at the splits, that Dumoulin lost that time trial in the second half of it. He was actually pretty competitive with Roglic and then just fell off a cliff and lost like 50 seconds over the last 20 kilometers. Um, so like 90% of his deficit, his second place deficit was lost in the second half of the race. But this bodes pretty well for him going forward. I mean, that bounce back is is really impressive. I wouldn't be shocked to see him you know, competing for Grand Tours again next year. You know, so, so a lot to think about, kind of a lot to chew on just from these last few weeks, from these last few weeks. And as weird as it is, I think we're going to have to start gearing up for the Vuelta early next week. So I'll be back with the pre-Vuelta podcast next week. Thanks for listening. Um, rate, if you have the time, rate and review five stars, please, if you have the time and you have a rate system on the app you're listening to. And remember, you can always sign up for the news- newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com if you want more info in between podcasts. All right. Have a great day and talk to you later. Bye. Bye.